Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Occasionally, we will run ads in order to cover the costs of the production of the podcast. Rest assured, there will be no ads during or after the story. If you prefer an ad-free and intro-free show, you can join Just Sleep Premium. Visit justsleeppodcast.com slash support for more information. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Tonight, I'll be continuing a story that has been requested by quite a few listeners of the podcast. I will be continuing Black Beauty by Anna Sewell. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. Chapter 7 Ginger 
One day, when Ginger and I were standing alone in the shade, we had a great deal of talk. She wanted to know all about my bringing up and breaking in, and I told her. Well, said she, if I had had your bringing up, I might have had as good a temper as you. But now I don't believe I ever shall. Why not? I said. Because it has been all so different with me, she replied. I never had anyone, horse or man, that was kind to me or that I cared to please. For in the first place I was taken from my mother as soon as I was weaned and put with a lot of other young colts. None of them cared for me and I cared for none of them. There was no kind master like yours to look after me and talk to me and bring me nice things to eat. The man that had care of us never gave me a kind word in my life. I do not mean that he ill-used me, but he did not care for us one bit further than to see that we had plenty to eat and shelter in the winter. A footpath ran through our field, and very often the great boys passing through would fling stones to make us gallop. I was never hit, but one fine young colt was badly cut in the face, and I should think it would be a scar for life. We did not care for them, but of course it made us more wild, and we settled it in our minds that boys were our enemies. We had very good fun in the free meadows, galloping up and down and chasing each other round and round the field, then standing still under the shade of the trees. But when it came to breaking in, that was a bad time for me. Several men came to catch me, and when at last they closed me in at one corner of the field, one caught me by the forelock, another caught me by the nose, and held it so tight I could hardly draw my breath. Then another took me under jaw in his hard hand and wrenched my mouth open. And so by force they got on the halter and the bar into my mouth. Then one dragged me along by the halter, another flogging behind. And this was the first experience I had of men's kindness. It was all force. They did not give me a chance to know what they wanted. I was high-bred and had a great deal of spirit, was very wild, no doubt, and I gave them, I dare say, plenty of trouble. But then it was dreadful to be shut up in a stall, day after day, instead of having my liberty, and I fretted and pined and wanted to get loose. You know yourself it's bad enough when you have a kind master and plenty of coaxing, but there was nothing of that sort for me. There was one, the old master, Mr. Ryder, who I think could soon have brought me round and could have done anything with me, but he had given up all the hard part of the trade to his son and to another experienced man, and he only came at times to oversee. His son was a strong, tall, bold man. They called him Samson, and he used to boast that he had never found a horse that could throw him. There was no gentleness in him, as there was in his father, but only hardness, a hard voice, a hard eye, a hard hand. And I felt from the first that what he wanted was to wear all the spirit out of me and just make me into a quiet, humble, obedient piece of horseflesh. Horseflesh, yes, that is all that he thought about. And Ginger stamped her foot as if the very thought of him made her angry. She went on. If I did not do exactly what he wanted, he would get put out and make me run round with that long rein in the training field till he had tired me out. 
I think he drank a good deal, and I'm quite sure that the oftener he drank, the worse it was for me. One day he had worked me hard in every way he could, and when I laid down I was tired and miserable and angry. It all seemed so hard. The next morning he came for me early and ran me round again for a long time. I had scarcely had an hour's rest when he came again for me with a saddle and bridle and a new kind of bit. I could never quite tell how it came about. He had only just mounted me on the training ground, when something I did put him out of temper, and he chucked me hard with the rein. The new bit was very painful, and I reared up suddenly, which angered him still more, and he began to flog me. I felt my whole spirit set against him, and I began to kick and plunge and rear as I had never done before, and we had a regular fight. For a long time, he stuck to the saddle and punished me cruelly with his whip and spurs, but my blood was thoroughly up, and I cared for nothing he could do if only I could get him off. At last, after a terrible struggle, I threw him off backwards. I heard him fall heavily on the turf, and without looking behind me, I galloped off to the other end of the field. There I turned round and saw my persecutor slowly rising from the ground and going into the stable. I stood under an oak tree and watched, but no one came to catch me. The time went on, and the sun was very hot. The flies swarmed round me and settled on my bleeding flanks where the spurs had dug in. I felt hungry, for I had not eaten since the early morning, but there was not enough grass in that meadow for a goose to live on. I wanted to lie down and rest, but with the saddle strapped tightly on, there was no comfort, and there was not a drop of water to drink. The afternoon wore on, and the sun got low. I saw the other colts led in, and I knew they were having a good feed. At last, just as the sun went down, I saw the old master come out with a sieve in his hand. He was a very fine old gentleman with quite white hair, but his voice was what I should know him by amongst a thousand. It was not high, nor yet low, but full and clear and kind. And when he gave orders, it was so steady and decided that everyone knew, both horses and men, that he expected to be obeyed. He came quietly along, now and then shaking the oats about that he had in the sieve, and speaking cheerfully and gently to me. Come along, lassie, come along, lassie. Come along, come along. I stood still and let him come up. He held to the oats to me, and I began to eat without fear. His voice took away all my fear. He stood by, patting and stroking me while I was eating, and seeing the clots of blood on my side, he seemed very vexed. Poor lassie. It was a bad business, a bad business. Then he quietly took the rein and led me to the stable. Just at the door stood Samson. I laid my ears back and snapped at him. Stand back, said the master, and keep out of her way. You've done a bad day's work for this filly. He growled out something about a vicious brute. Hark ye, said the father. A bad-tempered man will never make a good-tempered horse. You've not learned your trade yet, Samson. Then he led me into my box, took off the saddle and bridle with his own hands, and tied me up. Then he called for a pail of warm water and a sponge, took off his coat, and while the stableman held to the pail, he sponged my sides a good while so tenderly that I was sure he knew how sore and bruised they were. Oh, my pretty one, he said, stand still 
stand still. His very voice did me good, and the bathing was very comfortable. The skin was so broken at the corners of my mouth that I could not eat the hay. The stalks hurt me. He looked closely at it, shook his head, and told the man to fetch a good bran mash and put some meal into it. How good that mash was, and so soft and healing to my mouth. He stood by all the time I was eating, stroking me and talking to the man. If a high-mettled creature like this, said he, can't be broken in by fair means, she will never be good for anything. After that, he often came to see me, and when my mouth was healed, the other breaker, Job, they called him, went on training me. He was thoughtful and steady, and I soon learned what he wanted. Chapter 8 Ginger's Story Continued The next time that Ginger and I were together in the paddock, she told me about her first place. After my breaking in, she said, I was bought by a dealer to match another chestnut horse. For some weeks he drove us together, and then we were sold to a fashionable gentleman and were sent up to London. I had been driven with a check rein by the dealer, and I hated it worse than anything else. But in this place we were reined far tighter. The coachman and his master thinking we looked more stylish so. We were often driven about in the park and other fashionable places. You who never had a check rein on don't know what it is, but I can tell you it is dreadful. I like to toss my head about and hold it as high as any horse. But fancy now yourself, if you tossed your head up high and were obliged to hold it there, and that for hours together, not able to move it at all, except with a jerk still higher, your neck aching till you do not know how to bear it. Besides that, to have two bits instead of one, and mine was a sharp one. It hurt my tongue and my jaw, and the blood from my tongue coloured the froth that kept flying from my lips as I chafed and fretted at the bits and rain. It was worse when we had to stand by the hour waiting for our mistress at some grand party or entertainment, and if I fretted or stamped with impatience, the whip was laid on. It was enough to drive one mad. Did not your master take any thought for you? I said. No, said she. He only cared to have a stylish turnout, as they call it. I think he knew very little about horses. He left that to his coachman, who told him I had an irritable temper, that I had not been well broken to the check rein, but I should soon get used to it. But he was not the man to do it. For when I was in the stable, miserable and angry, instead of being soothed and quieted by kindness, I got only a surly word or a blow. If he had been civil, I would have tried to bear it. I was willing to work and ready to work hard too, but to be tormented for nothing but their fancies angered me. What right had they to make me suffer like that? Besides the soreness in my mouth and the pain in my neck, it always made my windpipe feel bad, and if I had stopped there long, I know it would have spoiled my breathing. But I grew more and more restless and irritable. I could not help it, and I began to snap and kick when anyone came to harness me. For this, the groom beat me, and one day, as they had just buckled us into the carriage and were straining my head up with that rein, I began to plunge and kick with all my might. I soon broke a lot of harness and kicked myself clear. So that was an end of that place. After this, I was sent to Tattersall's to be sold. Of course, I could not be warranted free from vice, so nothing was said about that. My handsome appearance and good paces 
soon brought a gentleman to bid for me, and I was bought by another dealer. He tried me in all kinds of ways and with different bits, and he soon found out what I could bear. At last, he drove me quite without a check rein, and then sold me as a perfectly quiet horse to a gentleman in the country. He was a good master, and I was getting on very well, but his old groom left him, and a new one came. This man was as hard-tempered and hard-handed as Samson. He always spoke in a rough, impatient voice, and if I did not move in the stall the moment he wanted me, he would hit me above the hawks with his stable broom or with a fork, whichever he might have in his hand. Everything he did was rough, and I began to hate him. He wanted to make me afraid of him, but I was too high-mettled for that, and one day, when he had aggravated me more than usual, I bit him, which of course put him in a great rage, and he began to hit me about the head with a riding whip. After that, he never dared to come into my stall again. Either my heels or my teeth were ready for him, and he knew it. I was quite quiet with my master, but of course, he listened to what the man said, and so I was sold again. The same dealer heard of me and said he thought he knew one place where I should do well. "'Twas a pity,' he said, "'that such a fine horse should go to the bad "'for want of a real good chance. "'And the end of it was that I came here "'not long before you did, "'but I had then made up my mind "'that men were my natural enemies "'and that I must defend myself. "'Of course, it is very different here, "'but who knows how long it will last. "'I wish I could think about things as you do, "'but I can't, after all I've gone through.' "'Well,' I said, I think it would be a real shame if you were to bite or kick John or James. I don't mean to, she said, while they are good to me. I did bite James once pretty sharp, but John said, try her with kindness. And instead of punishing me, as I expected, James came to me with his arm bound up and brought me a bran mash and stroked me. And I've never snapped at him since, and I won't either. I was sorry for Ginger, but of course I knew very little then and I thought most likely she made the worst of it. However, I found that as the weeks went on, she grew much more gentle and cheerful and had lost the watchful, defiant look that she used to turn on any strange person who came near her. And one day James said, I do believe that mare is getting fond of me. She whinnied after me this morning when I had been rubbing her forehead. Aye, aye, Jim, tis the Bertwick balls, said John. She'll be as good as black beauty by and by. Kindness is all the physic she wants, poor thing. Master noticed the change too, and one day, when he got out of the carriage and came to speak to us, as he often did, he stroked her beautiful neck. Well, my pretty one, well, how do things go with you now? You're a good bit happier than when you came to us, I think. She put her nose up to him in a friendly, trustful way while he rubbed it gently. We shall make a cure of her, John, he said. Yes, sir, she's wonderfully improved. She's not the same creature that she was. It's the Bertwick Balls, sir, said John, laughing. This was a little joke of John's. He used to say that a regular course of the Bertwick horse balls would cure almost any vicious horse. These balls, he said, were made up of patience and gentleness, firmness and petting. One pound of each to be mixed up with half a pint of common sense and given to the horse every day. Chapter 9. Merry Legs Mr. Bloomfield, the vicar, 
had a large family of boys and girls. Sometimes he used to come and play with Miss Jessie and Flora. One of the girls was as old as Miss Jessie. Two of the boys were older, and there were several little ones. When they came, there was plenty of work for Merrylegs, for nothing pleased them so much as getting on him, by turns, and riding him all about the orchard and the home paddock, and this they would do by the hour together. One afternoon, he had been out with them a long time, and when James brought him in and put on his halter, he said, There, you rogue, mind how you behave yourself, or we shall get into trouble. What have you been doing, Merrylegs? I asked. Oh, said he, tossing his little head. I've only been giving those young people a lesson. They did not know when they had had enough, nor when I had had enough. So I just pitched them off backwards. That was the only thing they could understand. What? said I. You threw the children off? I thought you did know better than that. Did you throw Miss Jessie or Miss Flora? He looked very much offended and said, Of course not. I will not do such a thing for the best oats that ever came into the stable. Why, I am as careful of our young ladies as the master could be, and as for the little ones, it is I who teach them to ride. When they seem frightened or a little unsteady on my back, I go as smooth and as quiet as old Kitty when she is after a bird. And when they are all right, I go on again faster, you see, just to accustom them to it. So don't you trouble yourself preaching to me. I am the best friend and the best riding master those children have. It is not them. It is the boys. Boys, said he, shaking his mane, are quite different. They must be broken in, as we are broken in when we are colts, and just be taught what's what. The other children had ridden me for about nearly two hours, and then the boys thought it was their turn, and so it was, and I was quite agreeable. They rode me by turns, and I galloped them about, up and down the fields, and all about the orchard for a good hour. They had each cut a great hazel stick for a riding whip, and laid it on a little too hard, but I took it in good part, till at last I thought we had had enough, so I stopped two or three times by way of a hint. Boys, you see, think a horse or a pony is like a steam engine or a thrashing machine, and can go on as long and as fast as they please. They never think that a pony can get tired, or have feelings. So, as the one who was whipping me could not understand, I just rose up on my hind legs and let him slip off behind. That was all. He mounted me again and I did the same. Then the other boy got up, and as soon as he began to use his stick, I laid him on the grass, and so on, till they were able to understand. That was all. They're not bad boys. They don't wish to be cruel. I like them very well, but you see, I had to give them a lesson. When they brought me to James and told him, I think he was very angry to see such big sticks. He said they were only fit for drovers and not for young men. If I had been you, said Ginger, I would have given those boys a good kick and that would have given them a lesson. No doubt you would, said Merrylegs, but then I'm not quite such a fool, begging your pardon, as to anger our master or make James ashamed of me. Besides, those children are under my charge when they are riding. I tell you, they are entrusted to me. Why, only the other day I heard our master say to Mrs. Bloomfield, My dear madam, you need not be anxious about the children. My old Merrylegs will take as much care of them as you or I could. I assure you, I would not sell that pony for any money. He is so perfectly good-tempered and trustworthy. 
And do you think I'm such an ungrateful brute as to forget all the kind treatment I've had here for five years and all the trust they place in me and turn vicious because a couple of ignorant boys used me badly? No, no. You never have had a place, a good place, where they were kind to you, and so you don't know. And I'm sorry for you, but I can tell you good places make good horses. I won't vex our people for anything. I love them, I do, said Mary Legs. And he gave a low <laughs> through his nose, as he used to do in the morning when he heard James's footstep at the door. Besides, he went on, if I took to kicking, where should I be? Why, well, sold off in a jiffy, and no character. And I might find myself slaved about under a butcher's boy, or worked to death at some seaside place where no one cared for me, except to find out how fast I could go. Or be flogged along in some cart, with three or four great men in it, going out for a Sunday spree as I have often seen in the place I lived before I came here. No, said he, shaking his head. I hope I shall never come to that. Chapter 10 A Talk in the Orchard Ginger and I were not of the regular tall carriage horse breed. We had more of the racing blood in us. We stood about fifteen and a half hands high, and... We were therefore just as good for riding as we were for driving, and our master used to say that he disliked either horse or man that could do but one thing. And as he did not want to show off in London parks, he preferred a more active and useful kind of horse. As for us, our greatest pleasure was when we were saddled for a riding party, the master on Ginger, the mistress on me, and the young ladies on Sir Oliver and Merrylegs. It was so cheerful to be trotting and cantering all together that it always put us in high spirits. I had the best of it, for I always carried the mistress. Her weight was little, her voice was sweet, and her hand was so light on the rein that I was guided almost without feeling it. Oh, if people knew what a comfort to horses a light hand is, and how it keeps a good mouth and a good temper, they surely would not chuck and drag and pull the rein as they do. Our mouths are so tender that where they have not been spoiled or hardened with bad or ignorant treatment, they feel the slightest movement of the driver's hand, and we know in an instant what is required of us. My mouth had never been spoiled, and I believe that was why the mistress preferred me to Ginger, although her paces were certainly quite as good. She used often to envy me, and said it was all the fault of breaking in, and the gag bit in London, that her mouth was not as perfect as mine. And then old Sir Oliver would say, there, there, don't vex yourself. You have the greatest honour. A mare that can carry a tall man of our master's weight with all your spring and sprightly action does not need to hold her head down because she does not carry the lady. We horses must take things as they come and always be contented and willing so long as we are kindly used. I had often wondered how it was that Sir Oliver had such a very short tail. It really was only six or seven inches long with a tassel of hair hanging from it. And on one of our holidays in the orchard, I ventured to ask him by what accident it was that he had lost his tail. Accident, he snorted with a fierce look. It was no accident. It was a cruel, shameful, cold-blooded act. When I was young, I was taken to a place where these cruel things were done. I was tied up and made fast so that I could not stir. And then they came and cut off my long and beautiful tail through the flesh and through the bone, and took it away. How dreadful, I exclaimed. Dreadful, ah, it was dreadful. 
but it was not only the pain, though that was terrible and lasted a long time. It was not only the indignity of having my best ornament taken from me, though that was bad. But it was this. How could I ever brush the flies off my sides and my hind legs anymore? You who have tails just whisk the flies off without thinking about it, and you can't tell what a torment it is to have them settle upon you and sting and sting. And have nothing in the world to lash them off with. I tell you it was a lifelong wrong and a lifelong loss. But thank heaven, they don't do it now. What did they do it for then, said Ginger? For fashion, said the old horse with a stamp of his foot. For fashion, if you know what that means. There was not a well-bred young horse in my time that had not his tail docked in that shameful way, just as if the good God that made us did not know what he wanted and what looked best. I suppose it is fashion that makes them strap our heads up with those horrid bits that I was tortured with in London, said Ginger. Of course it is, said he. To my mind, fashion is one of the wickedest things in the world. Now look. For instance, at the way they serve dogs, cutting off their tails to make them look plucky, and sharing up their pretty little ears to a point to make them both look sharp, forsooth. I had a dear friend once, a brown terrier, Skye, they called her. She was so fond of me that she would never sleep out of my stall. She made her bed under the manger, and there she had a litter of five as pretty little puppies as need be. None were drowned, for they were a valuable kind, and how pleased she was with them. And when they got their eyes open and crawled about, it was a really pretty sight. But one day, the man came and took them all away. I thought he might be afraid I should tread upon them, but it was not so. In the evening, poor Skye brought them back again, one by one in her mouth. Not the happy little things that they were, but bleeding and crying pitifully. They had all had a piece of their tails cut off, and the soft flap of their pretty little ears was cut off. How their mother licked them, and how troubled she was, poor thing. I never forgot it. They healed in time, and they forgot the pain, but the nice soft flap that of course was intended to protect the delicate part of their ears from dust and injury was gone forever. Why don't they cut their own children's ears into points to make them look sharp? Why don't they cut the end off their noses to make them look plucky? One would just be as sensible as the other. What right have they to torment and disfigure God's creatures? Sir Oliver, though he was so gentle, was a fiery old fellow and what he said was also new to me and so dreadful that I found a bitter feeling towards men rise up in my mind that I never had before. Of course, Ginger was very much excited. She flung up her head with flashing eyes and distended nostrils, declaring that men were both brutes and blockheads. Who talks about blockheads, said Mary Legs, who just came up from the apple tree, where he had been rubbing himself against the low branch. Who talks about blockheads? I believe that is a bad word. Bad words were made for bad things, said Ginger, as she told him what Sir Oliver had said. It is all true, said Merrylegs sadly, and I've seen that about the dogs over and over again where I lived first, but we won't talk about it here. You know that Master and John and James are always good to us, and talking against men in such a place as this doesn't seem fair or grateful. And you know there are good masters and good grooms beside ours, though of course ours are the best. This wise speech of good little Merrylegs, which we knew was quite true, cooled us all down, especially Sir Oliver, who was dearly fond of his master. And to turn the subject, I said, Can anyone tell me the use of blinkers? No, 
said Sir Oliver shortly, because they are no use. They are supposed, said Justice, the Roan Cobb, in his calm way, to prevent horses from shying and starting and getting so frightened as to cause accidents. Then what is the reason they do not put them on riding horses, especially on ladies' horses, said I. There is no reason at all, said he quietly, except the fashion. They say that a horse would be so frightened to see the wheels of his own cart or carriage coming behind him that he would be sure to run away. Although, of course, when he is ridden, he sees them all about him if the streets are crowded. I admit they do sometimes come too close to be pleasant, but we don't run away. We're used to it and understand it. And if we never had blinkers on, we should never want them. We should see what was there and know what was what and be much less frightened than by only seeing bits of things that we can't understand. Of course, there may be some nervous horses who have been hurt or frightened when they were young, who may be the better for them. But as I never was nervous, I can't judge. I consider, said Sir Oliver, that blinkers are dangerous things in the night. We horses can see much better in the dark than men can, and many an accident would never have happened if horses might have had the full use of their eyes. Some years ago, I remember, there was a carriage with two horses returning one dark night, and just by Farmer Sparrow's house, where the pond is close to the road. The wheels went too near the edge, and the carriage was overturned into the water. Both the horses were drowned, and the driver hardly escaped. Of course, after this accident, a stout white rail was put up that might be easily seen. But if those horses had not been partly blinded, they would have themselves have kept further from the edge and no accident would have happened. When our master's carriage was overturned, before you came here, it was said that if the lamp on the left side had not gone out, John would have seen the great hole that the roadmakers had left, and so he might. But if old Colin had not had blinkers on, he would have seen it, lamp or no lamp, for he is far too knowing an old horse to run into danger. As it was, he was very much hurt, the carriage was broken, and how John escaped nobody knew. I should say, said Ginger, curling her nostril, that these men, who are so wise, had better give orders that in the future all foals should be born with their eyes set just in the middle of their foreheads instead of on the side. They always think they can improve upon nature and mend what God has made. Things were getting rather sore again when Mary Legs held up his knowing little face and said, I'll tell you a secret. I believe John does not approve of Linker's. I heard him talking with the master about it one day. The master said that if horses had been used to them, it might be dangerous in some cases to leave them off. And John said that he thought it would be a good thing if all colts were broken in without blinkers, as was the case in some foreign countries. So let us cheer up and have a run to the other end of the orchard. I believe the wind has blown down some apples and we might just as well eat them as the slugs. Merrylegs could not be resisted, so we broke off our long conversation and got up our spirits by munching some very sweet apples which lay scattered on the grass. Chapter 11 Plain Speaking The longer I lived at Birtwick, the more proud and happy I felt at having such a place. Our master and mistress were respected and beloved by all who knew them. They were good and kind to everybody and everything, not only men and women, but horses and donkeys, dogs and cats, cattle and birds, there was no oppressed or ill-used creature that had not a friend in them, and their servants took the same tone. If any of the village children were known to treat any creature cruelly, they soon heard about it, 
from the hall. The squire and Farmer Gray had worked together, as they said, for more than twenty years to get check reins on the cart horses done away with. In our parts, you seldom saw them, and sometimes, if Mistress met a heavy laden horse with his head strained up, she would stop the carriage and get out and reason with the driver in her sweet, serious voice and try to show him how foolish and cruel it was. I don't think any man could withstand our mistress. I wish all ladies were like her. Our master, too, used to come down very heavy sometimes. I remember he was riding me towards home one morning when we saw a powerful man driving towards us in a light pony chase with a beautiful little bay pony with slender legs and a high-bred, sensitive head and face. Just as he came to the park gates, the little thing turned towards him. The man, without word or warning, wrenched the creature's head round with such a force and suddenness that he nearly threw it on his haunches. Recovering itself, it was going on when he began to lash it furiously. The pony plunged forward, but the strong, heavy hand held the pretty creature back with force, almost enough to break its jaw while the whip was still cut into him. It was a dreadful sight to me, for I knew what fearful pain it gave that delicate little mouth. The master gave me the word, and we were up with him in a second. Sawyer, he cried in a stern voice, is that pony made of flesh and blood? Flesh and blood and temper, he said. He's too fond of his own will, and that won't suit me. He spoke as if he was in a strong passion. He was a builder who had often been to the park on business. And do you think, said Master sternly, that treatment like this will make him fond of your will? He had no business to make that turn. His road was straight on, said the man roughly. You've often driven that pony up to my place, said the master. It only shows the creature's memory and intelligence. How did he know that you were not going there again? But that has little to do with it. I must say, Mr. Sawyer, that more unmanly, brutal treatment of a little pony was never my painful lot to witness. And by giving way to such passions, you injure your own character as much, nay more, than you injure your horse. I remember, we shall all have to be judged according to our works, whether they be towards man or towards beast. Master rode me home slowly, and I could tell by his voice how the thing had grieved him. He was just as free to speak to gentlemen of his own rank as to those below him, for another day when we were out, he met a Captain Langley, a friend of our master's. He was driving a standard pair of greys in a kind of break. After a little conversation, the captain said, What do you think of my new team, Mr. Douglas? You know you are the judge of horses in these parts, and I should like your opinion. The master backed me a little so as to get a good view of them. There are an uncommonly handsome pair, he said, and if they are as good as they look, I am sure you need not wish for anything better. But I see you still hold to that pet scheme of yours for worrying your horses and lessening their power. What do you mean, said the other, the check reins? Oh, ah, uh, I know that's a hobby of yours, well, the fact is, I like to see my horses hold their heads up. So do I, said Master, as well as any man, but I don't like to see them held up. That takes all the shine out of it. Now you're a military man, Langley, and no doubt like to see your regiment look well on parade, heads up and all that. But would you not take much credit for your drill if all your men had their heads tied to a backboard? It might not be much harm on parade, except to worry and fatigue them, but how would it be in a bayonet charge against the enemy, when they want to free use of every muscle and all their strength thrown forward? 
I would not give much for their chance of victory. And it is just the same with the horses. You fret and worry their tempers and decrease their power. You would not let them throw their weight against their work. And so they have to do too much with their joints and muscles. And of course it wears them up faster. You may depend upon it. Horses were intended to have their heads free, as free as men's are. And if we could act a little more according to common sense and a good deal less according to fashion, we should find many things work easier. Besides, you know well as I that if a horse takes a false step, he has much less chance of recovering himself if his head and neck are fastened back. And now, said the master laughing, I have given my hobby a good trot out. Can't you make up your mind to mount him too, Captain? Your example would go a long way. I believe you are right in theory, said the other. And that's rather a hard hit about the soldiers, but well, I'll think about it. And so they parted. Good night. <laughs>